Thanks, Sophia, for leading us this morning. Well, today we're going to uh, keep going in our sermon series called Faith That Moves as we're looking at the men and women of God found in Hebrews chapter 11, learning a little bit more about what faith uh, is. What does it mean? What does it look like lived out in our lives? And we've learned a number of things. We, we've discovered from uh, Hebrews 11, one, that it's confidence and it's assurance in something that is not seen. But biblical faith is not just in you know, random things, but it's in specifically in what God has said that we might not fully experience yet or, or we're waiting for the fulfillment of. But we also know that it's not some sort of just intellectual exercise, right? But it, it moves us to action. It's, it's deep assurance that, that transforms us so profoundly that it shapes all of our actions. We saw that with Noah, right? By faith, Noah, when he was warned of things not seen, built an ark. We saw then two weeks ago from the life of Abraham that, uh, that doesn't mean that life is going to be predictable or faith doesn't mean that things all of a sudden are certain and calm and there's no bumps. In fact, it's a life filled with uncertainties and unknown twists and turns. And that was true for Abraham as he followed God's call. It doesn't mean, again, that that's easy, but in fact, the life of faith is one that's marked with struggle. Struggle to take what God has promised and our experience and what to do with them when those don't line up, just like Abraham had to do with the sacrifice, excuse me, the sacrifice of his son whom God actually spared and in a way brought resurrection. Today, we're going to look at the, another aspect of faith through the life of Jacob. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn those on or open those up to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 21 is where we'll be, just one short verse today, but I think you'll find that it's not, uh, that it's still very, very loaded with uh, things for us to see about faith and about who our God is. So, hear the word of the Lord, Hebrews 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying blessed each of Joseph's sons, and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is the word of the Lord. I think there's a couple of kind of obvious, maybe low-hanging fruit, like observation things we could pull out of this to help us understand a little bit about faith, right? You see that, that by faith when Jacob was dying, that faith isn't some one-time thing you had when you were a little kid and now it's over, but it, it, it perseveres through an entire life. I think that's true. I think that passage demonstrates that. I think you could talk about how, by faith, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, his grandsons, that, that faith isn't primarily concerned just with myself, but it's also about seeing others know and experience the blessing of God. And I think that's true, and I think that's in here. You could talk about how, by faith, Jacob worshiped as he leaned on his staff, that, that faith leads us to greater worship as, as God is the giver of faith and he is the object of our faith. And I think all of those are true and they're kind of right there on the surface, but I think there's more under the surface that I want us to look at this morning. If we do a little bit of digging, I think there's something about why God has chosen to give us these pieces of Jacob's life as demonstrations of faith. So, for example, later on, you'll see if you were to kind of skim down Hebrews 11, you'd see there's a list of people that sometimes you just get their name and it's kind of like, think about their whole life. But someone like Jacob, you actually get two events that are pulled out of the end of his life while he's dying that are meant to be 
demonstrations of faith. And, and the question for me goes, well, why these two? Why, when Jacob was dying, are we highlighting that he blessed each of Joseph's sons and that he worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff? I think what I want to show you today is that it's trying to demonstrate to us that faith embraces weakness. Faith embraces weakness. And that both of these stories demonstrate that. They demonstrate God's faithfulness to Jacob, his love towards him, and also a faith in response to God's faithfulness that through the course of Jacob's life lead him finally to eventually embrace his weakness. But before we do that, let's get a little context. Let's kind of step back and, and do some broad picture things about Jacob's life, right? Jacob, one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If you're familiar with Jacob, you know that he is not the kind of guy that you want your daughter to bring home. He's just not someone that you're like, nailed it, right? He's, his name is heel grabber, which means nothing to us, but it's a Hebrew idiom that means he is a trickster. Not like a funny guy, not like a, a comedian, but a deceiver. He's manipulative. He's conniving. He, he does whatever it takes to maintain control in his life, to get ahead, to be in the position of power and strength. First story we see out of Jacob after his birth is years later where he's taking advantage and kind of manipulating a little bit his older brother in uh, at, at a time of his weakness in order to gain the birthright, which for us, again, means almost nothing because we don't know what that means. But the birthright is the thing that gave the firstborn son in the family the privileges and the power in the family. It's a double inheritance. It's all the power and a strength is given to the oldest son through the birthright. Interestingly enough, God, prior to Jacob's birth, had already told him, had told his mother and his parents, the younger will rule over the older. The older will serve the younger. So he was already kind of guaranteed this. He was already promised this position, this strength. And yet he didn't live in trusting what God said, but he lived the rest of his life grappling for that power, trying to get it for himself in whatever way he could. Manipulation doesn't matter. In fact, in Genesis 27, we find the next story is that he, he lies to and deceives his blind father in order to get the blessing and steal that from his brother Esau. Brother is not happy about this, shocker, and wants to come after and kill Jacob, so Jacob runs. Jacob runs to his uncle, whom he then cons and manipulates into making more wealth for himself. I mean, everywhere he goes, this is what his pattern is. Later on, we find that he's a terrible husband. He has four wives, never a good sign, by the way, <laughs> just doesn't turn out well for him. He's got a clear favorite, and the other women are fighting and jockeying for a position. They're, they're wrestling it out, trying to get his love and his affection, and he's just letting them duke it out. He's a terrible father. He's got 12 sons, and again, one of them is a clear favorite. And it makes the other 11 so angry and so jealous that they kidnap their, youngest, their younger brother Joseph. They, they stage his murder, and then sell him in slavery. But we'll stop there because that's next week's sermon, okay? We'll tell you about Joseph later. Here's what you find. If you are trying to read the Bible, and your primary goal in reading the Bible is to find moral heroes for yourself, I don't know what you do with Joseph, or I'm sorry, Jacob. I don't know what you do with Jacob. 
Because if his primary goal of the Bible is to give you an example, just follow their footsteps, be like Jacob. There's not much in the Bible that's like, be like Jacob. It's kind of messy and ugly. That's why the Bible primarily, yes, there are models of faith, and there are moments where it's like, this is what genuine faith in pursuit of God looks like. There are moments of that. But overall, the whole of Scripture is not designed to give you just examples, but it's to tell you the story of God's faithfulness, His, his pursuit in love of fallen humanity, and His faithfulness in spite of fallen humans' faithfulness. Faithlessness, excuse me. Big difference there. <laughs> It's his faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. This is true for Jacob. Jacob, you see, doesn't embrace his weakness. It doesn't even seem like he's acknowledging any weakness. He's doing everything he can to cover it up for it, to use his wit and to manipulate situations to get as much as he can for himself. He's trying to be in control everywhere he goes. And yet throughout Jacob's entire life, intermixed with this pride and this deception and this lack of faith in God, what we find is God continues to pursue him. He continues to bless him and promise greater blessings to him. Which brings us back to Hebrews eleven twenty one, 21. It says, by faith, when Jacob was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. Let's just take that first part to start. You have to remember, Bill said this last week, Hebrews 11 is like a bunch of hyperlinks. It doesn't give you the full story here. It just gives you a little hyperlink that you're supposed to be able to click in your mind and go to another webpage and remember all the details of how Joseph's sons were blessed by Jacob. Because the assumption is you know it. Let's not assume that of ourselves. Let's click the hyperlink and let's go back to Genesis 48. So go with me to Genesis 48, if you would, because I want to show you that it's not just about the fact that he blessed Joseph's sons. It's not about that he did it. It's how he did it that is so meaningful. While you guys are turning there, are there any oldest kids in the room? Kids or adults? You can raise your hands if you're an adult too, it's fine. Okay, oldest in the rooms. If you're an adult, you kind of have to remember back to kids. Kids, you can track with me on this. Has there ever been a time where you got to, as the oldest, stay up later than the other siblings or get to, you know, stay up and watch a movie with mom and dad or stay up till midnight on New Year's Eve, which I haven't done that in about a decade. <laughs> But you ever have something like that? Younger siblings in the room, anybody a little, little, little bitter about that? Anybody a little upset that like, oh, I got a hand real quick. I see you, Amy. <laughs> right? We're just like, that, that's not fair. What's going on? Like, what's the answer that you always give now as parents or kids? What do you get? It's because they are older. They're older. They get certain privileges and, and, and freedoms that you either might get later, they just get them first, or, sorry, it's just how it is as the firstborn. We have that a little bit in our world. On the, in the Bible, biblical times, it's that on steroids. Firstborn is all that matters. Firstborn are given the privileges. They're given the birthright and the blessing, which we just talked about. And so we come to Genesis chapter 48, and we find that, if you pick up in verse 10 with me, now Israel, this is Jacob's name that has been changed, which we'll come back to as to when that happened in a minute. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he could hardly see. And so Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, 
I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them, the kids, from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them. Ephraim, who is the younger, on his right towards Israel's left hand. And Manasseh, who is then the older, on his left towards Israel's right hand. And he brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he said he was displeased. He took a hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. Now, that so far, in a lot of ways, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because it feels a little bit like the kids who are fighting over who's sitting next to who at the dinner table, like who cares what hand, right? But in biblical times, this meant a great deal. You see, the biblical times, the the right hand was the hand of power. Maybe it's true today still in a little bit as well, but not nearly as much as it was then. The right hand is the hand of power, of strength, and of blessing. Whoever sat at someone's right hand, whoever was blessed by someone by the right hand, was more powerful than the left. The left was still a blessing, but not as much. And so Jacob's act was very unusual because that greater blessing was supposed to go to the older, the firstborn. But by faith, Jacob gave the better blessing to the son whom most men would not have chosen. He gave the better blessing to the one who would have been considered weaker, not to the one who would have been considered the strong. Here's what's amazing. This is how God loves to act. This is all throughout Scripture. To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. Why does He do that? Why does God operate with a different definition of strength and weakness than us? So that it doesn't rest on our ability, but on God's power. This is the way God works. He defines strength and weakness different. In this story, it would have been the older is stronger. In our world, what do we value? What do we see as strong? We see the popular, the well-liked, the talented, athletic, beautiful, attractive, articulate, the gifted, that's true strength. And so what do we do? We hide all of our weaknesses, and we operate out of our strengths. We maximize them and publicize our strengths as much as possible, because that's what everybody wants to see. The problem is that's just not how God operates. See, the promise 
of the younger being greater than the older, like we said, is the exact same promise that actually Jacob was given. But Jacob never lived this life of faith, of embracing this definition. He constantly worked through his whole life to manipulate, trusting in his own strength and abilities, using deception tricks, whatever it took to stay in a position of control. Until the end. And what we find is through, after a lifetime of struggle, Jacob crossing his hands in blessing is an act of faith, Hebrews says, that affirms, God, I see things now the way that you see them. I see that blessing and strength don't operate in the way that we typically would define them, but that weakness and strength, there's something else there. The question to me is, what happened to bring him to that point? Because if we've got Jacob, who is just a deceiver and a manipulator and all these things and selfish and, and trying to get control and maximize his strength to a point where he crosses his hands in blessing and says, you know what, God, I see your way. I submit. What, what happens? I think it's actually the same thing that leaves him in need of a staff to lean on while he's worshiping. Find it in Genesis 32. If you want to flip over there, you can join me there. Jacob had to be broken. He had to be broken of his need to be in control. He had to be broken of this imaginary facade of being strong and having everything under your control. And that takes place in Genesis 32, because up to here, he's been relying on his strength. He's been manipulating. In fact, you're going to find out, uh, it says in verse 24 that Jacob was alone, and the reason that he was alone was he had just taken all of his family when danger was coming, he sent him on the other side of the river as kind of like a shield. I'm telling you, this guy is quite a piece of work. And he's hanging out on the safe side. This is the guy we're dealing with here. But here's what happens. Even though he's been kind of functionally denying his weakness, God's continuing to bless him, and and this is what happens. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered, deceiver, liar, trickster, manipulator. The man said, your name will no longer be that. But Israel, because, which is what Israel means, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Verse 31 says that as the sun rose above him, he, Jacob, was limping because of his hip. I'm just going to guess with a staff. And what we find is that in this moment, God comes and he breaks Jacob of his self sufficiency that he thinks. His self-will, his, his, I've got this, I'm strong. And he left him with a permanent limp. And God comes and he leaves a broken man with a gracious wound. 
who is blessed in a way that might not be terribly comfortable, but is ultimately for his best. You see, Jacob has been running from God, and God's pursuit of him chases Jacob down to the point where later on in his life, years later, Jacob is worshiping God as he leans on this staff. One author puts it this way, that that the leaning on the staff is a constant reminder of the miracle that God had done in his life. Every day as Jacob limped along, constant reminder of his helplessness, of his moment-by-moment dependence on God, and he worshiped God as a broken man who actually embraced his weakness. So my question for you is, what is your staff? What, what is your thing that every time you experience it, every time you see that person, every time you, you, you experience something, it's this reminder of your weakness, of your day-by-day dependence on God and your need for Him. Some of us, that's a physical ailment. For some of us, it's, it, it, it's some relationship. Whenever you hear that person's name, you realize how weak you are. When something inside of you, there's just, there's, the, the reality is you are weak. And even though we're trying to say faith embraces weakness, I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate it. I hate the reality of being weak. I hate feeling out of control. I hate feeling helpless. I can't control anything outside of me. I can't even often control what's going on inside of me. See, I would much rather, when I think about myself, consider myself more like Iron Man, if you're a Marvel fan. Because think about Iron Man. The guy gets in fights with everyone and anything and comes out unscathed, super strong, never runs out of money, never runs out of resources, never runs out of ideas. He's always in control. He's got enough confidence for this entire room. Even when he goes out, spoiler alert, he goes out on his own terms. He is in total control of everything. That's what I want to be. I want to live in that world where I think that's who I am. People, little kids dress up for him, like him on Halloween. You know who they don't dress up like? Pigpen. You know Pigpen from Charlie Brown, the peanuts? The little kid who rolls around a ball of dust, who even after he gets a bath, he steps outside and he's dusty again. Iron Man sounds cool. Dust Man? I mean, it's just got no punch to it. There's nothing there that's like, yeah, Dust Man. Except the, here's the problem. That's who you are. That's who I am. You are made from dust, and to dust you will return. You are finite. You are temporal. You are by definition weak and limited. And many of us know that all too well. We have a huge list of all of our weaknesses. Just, it's everything in our lives just as a reminder, you're weak, you're weak, you're weak, you're weak. You can't control the circumstances. You can't change your own heart. You can't even change your own desires. Even things you're like, I don't want to want this, but I do. 
You can't change anybody else's opinion or views no matter how much you post on social media. You're just not going to change anybody else. You're powerless to change the world around us. You're small. Your life is not in control, and this is true physically, this is true emotionally, this is true mentally. You have no idea what's going to happen later today, and some of you, that just made anxiety just rise up inside of you, because that's who we are. We are small, frail, weak people. We are dust men, and that is unbelievably terrifying for us. When I say us, I don't have any exclusions. I mean every single one of us. Even the people who look like they've got it all together, even the people you look at and admire their lives and I just think, oh, if I just had their life, everything would be better. No, them too. They're weak, they're frail, and they're terrified, and so am I. Here's why I'm scared. Because I know the depth of my weakness. I know where I'm at. As much as I try to push it away, it's there in every area of my life. I am weak and out of control, but I'm terrified that if you see me in my weakness, you will condemn me. You will distance yourself from me. It'll be too much for you to handle. The crazy thing is every one of you is thinking the same exact thing. We live in a culture that despises neediness that values independence above all else. That we must have everything together to present well. We're constantly marketing ourselves. We're guarding our reputation, and we idolize these authorities of power, celebrities, athletes, whoever's got money. And on social media, we can curate whatever object, you know, whatever, whatever picture we want to present of ourselves, which is always strong. The problem is it's not just even a cultural thing. You can't blame that on America. That's what it means to be human. Because to admit our weakness, to embrace our weakness, means we have to admit that we are not enough. And I don't care how many times someone tells you, you've got greatness inside of you. Guys, I'm at the bottom. I can't dig any deeper. There's nothing there. I have no inner strength to draw from. It's weak. Life is not in our control. We have to admit that. And in doing so, we actually go against the very thing that that brought sin into our lives, which is that we want to be God. And acknowledging our weakness means we acknowledge that we are not and cannot be God. And that's hard. And yet, I say all this about weakness, not to leave you like, amen, you know, good luck, go do your thing, right? This isn't to make you feel bad, this is actually the greatest news in the entire world for you. If you're feeling weak, that's really good news. Here's why. The Apostle Paul, in his letter, second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, he's got a little bit of an argument going on with the, the church in Corinth. And they're basically like, yeah, show us your credentials so we listen to you. Show us how strong you are, in other words. And Paul's like, I don't want to play this game. All right, I'll play with the theme for a minute. Look, I'll start to brag, but I'm basically, he says, I, I'm, I'm speaking like a fool. I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Because he goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 30, if I'm going to boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. That doesn't sound right. 
We hide our weakness. What are you talking about, Paul? Chapter 12, verse 7, he says that in light of all the things that he has experienced, all the gifts that he has as an apostle, he says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, some sort of weakness. We don't know what that is. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, all the stuff that I run away from. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, when you are broken to the point where you embrace your weakness, you are in the best spot imaginable. Because when you are ignoring in your words, in your functional life, ignoring your own weakness, trying to live and play up your strengths, you're actually putting yourself in direct opposition to the grace that you need. Because God's not interested in, in, in sharing with you. It's actually when we get out of the way and acknowledge our weakness that His power shines through. He doesn't want to share glory. He gets the glory. For when we are weak, that is when our strength is found because it's not our strength, it's Christ's power that lives in through us. Here's how I know that's true. Because that follows the same pattern of our Savior. Let me ask you, when do you think Jesus' strongest moment was in His ministry on earth? When was His strongest moment? Was when He looked at demons inside, other, inside of humans and was like, get out, we're done. And they listened. Was it when he went to a little girl who had been dead and he said, hey, sweetie, it's time to wake up? Was it when he rebuked the storm like a child and it listened? Those are all strong. But his strongest moment was the night of his crucifixion when he said, I could have called down 12 legions of angels to stop this. I could have flexed and had all kinds of power that you don't even have a clue about but I choose surrender, but I choose to take the path of weakness. He chose the path of faith that trusted that his father would not leave him to the realm of darkness, but would bring resurrection. He walked that life to defeat death and to bring about life for all who would trust in him. But that means we must follow him into weakness, into death, into suffering, trusting that resurrection, as we saw last week, is on the other side. To embrace the gospel is to embrace your weakness. The gospel message requires you to first confront and admit your weakness. From the start, to admit that our, our, our inability to resolve our sin problem, to remove our sin, to forgive our sin, we can't deal with that. We must look in faith to Christ. That is to acknowledge our weakness. And that's every day after as a Christian to recognize that as Jesus says, you can do nothing without me. The path of faith is one that comes back and just says, Jesus, I actually needed you more than I thought, last, than I thought yesterday. I need you more today. 
I'm more needy. I'm more desperate. And here's the amazing thing. That doesn't push God away. He doesn't look at your weakness and your neediness and go, ugh, again? But when he sees you in your weakness, he moves away. He doesn't move away in disgust. He moves towards you in love. There's a man named Dan McCartney who wrote an article in the Westminster Journal that is called, his title is amazing. He says, there is no grace without weakness. That the posture of weakness is the posture of faith. So let me put this in a, in a, in a positive light. If today you are sitting here and you are very aware of your weakness, if you are aware of your weakness in every facet of your life, you are walking the path of faith that puts you in a prime position to experience the grace and the power of God in a really profound way. That's the best news in the entire world. As much as it's uncomfortable, unnerving, you hate it, it's a gift. I don't know what the last couple of years have been like for you, but I think the entire globe has realized how weak and powerless we are. That got like amplified for our family the last couple of months. This summer has been like God taking out his giant highlighter and just going, let's highlight weakness in your life. <sighs> and event after event in our family has left us realizing, John, you are out of control. This, you, you can't make anything happen the way you want. Nothing is working out the way you were hoping. In fact, you don't know what's going to happen, and that makes me scared. And I'm anxious about all that. And I look at it and I go, what? what? I can't control my own emotions in the moment. <laughs> like, there is, there is nothing. Uh, I'm weak. And so are you. And it's unbelievably uncomfortable. And I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and she just made a comment about how even in our prayers, most of our prayers are, Lord, can you just take this away from us? Can you just remove the thing that makes me feel weak and out of control? Can you just get rid of that? And I don't think there's anything necessarily evil about asking for that. In fact, Paul does that. He says, please with the Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. He pleaded three times to the Lord, and you know what the Lord answered? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. I am enough for you. Which means that maybe our prayers ought not to be so much about removing the weaknesses, but embracing the God who in our weakness is enough, who is strong. When you are weak, you are in a beautiful place to experience the grace of God that will leave you very uncomfortable, will leave you broken, it will leave you worshiping, while you lean on a staff because your hip is thrown out of joint. Here's the thing. Every single one of us has the same desire. We long to be known, even in our weaknesses. In 2004, a man named Frank Warren started this project. It was called Post Secret. Maybe you've heard of this where he knows that everyone wants to be known in their secrets. And so what he invited people to do was to take a homemade postcard and to write anonymously anything they wanted. And he would post it on his website. And millions of people did. 
they posted all sorts of things that they wanted to be known for. They wanted to, they wanted to be known, but they were terrified that they would be condemned. So they did it anonymously. Every one of us has the same desire, which is to be fully known in our weakness. The problem with post-secret is that it doesn't allow you to be fully loved while you're being fully known. That's what you want. Here's the amazing thing about Christ. Before he came to this earth, before you breathed a breath, he knew you were a dust man and not iron man. He knew you were weak. He knew every individual weakness that is in this room and ones that you haven't even become aware of yet. He knew it, and he came to the cross because he loves you. Fully known, fully loved. That is the message of the gospel. And if that's the message of our Savior, church, what do you think we ought to be? What do you think we ought to be as a church, as his followers? He is our head. We follow him. How beautiful would it be if we were a church where we didn't feel the need to continue to put on an advertisement of our strengths to one another, but we were real. We lived a life of confessing our weakness, confessing our sin, living vulnerable with one another. And I'm not going to ask you to come up and just like, you know, throw up all your weaknesses on everybody. There's appropriateness to this. But are you known? It's scary because you don't know how they're going to respond to you. In fact, that's something that we as a church need to repent of. We need to repent of our inability to sit with one another in our weaknesses. We don't know what to do with each other. We don't know what to do with ourselves. What embracing your weakness does is it allows you, it fills you by the Spirit of God with compassion and humility that says, I know I'm just like you. You might just have the courage to let me see it. And it moves us with compassion towards one another. God, help us. Start that with your spouse if you're married. Start that with your roommates. Start that with a close friend, with your kids. Let them see your weakness. It's reality. With your community group, wherever you are, be known. Because you already are fully known and fully loved by the God of this universe. By the grace of God, may we be a people who, like Jacob, over a lifetime of struggle, embrace little bit by little bit every day our weakness, because in our weakness, God's power shines through. We are found needy, and that's a gift of God. May we be a people who worship as we lean on our staff as well. Let me pray. Father, this is really hard. I would love to believe you. I want to believe you that my weaknesses are actually good, that they are a strength, an opportunity for your power to shine through. And it is terrifying, and I hate it because it feels out of control, and I so desperately just want to be in control. But you are so good to not let us have something less than the best, something less than in reality. You don't let us live in this fantasy world of control and strength. And yet, when you show us our weakness, you don't leave us there either but you bring your strength, your power, your grace. And so, Lord, help our unbelief. Transform us. Make us a church who embraces our own weakness and teach us how to embrace one another and bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ as we do that. May we be a church who loves, 
who listens, who sits with, who walks with each other in our weaknesses and does the same with the world around us because they are in the same boat. Lord, you know us, you love us. That's amazing. Father, we bless you, we praise you for your grace and your goodness. Do these things and more for your own glory, for our good, and for the sake of the world, desperately longing to be known. In Jesus' name, amen.